Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Einat Wilf, a former member of the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Einat uses her unique identity as a Zionist, a feminist, and an atheist to be a progressive advocate for Israelis. How I have had the honor of getting to know Einat, however, has been through the tremendous work that she's done in the diaspora. Her books have been transformative in shaping the work of countless Jewish activists, myself included. And she's been super involved in the Jewish nonprofit world, including my own organization, Jewish on Campus. She has a foot in every pot in the Jewish world, Israeli politics and diaspora protection. She's an advocate and an educator, a politician and an author, a professor and a mentor. Sitting down and speaking with Einat was a particularly impactful experience, since she's inspired so much of the work that I've done. When I first found myself becoming a voice in the Jewish community, her book, The War of Return, was one of the first pieces I bought. When I first looked toward mentors to help expand the work I had been doing, Einat was one of the first people I reached out to. And when I first began recording this podcast, I knew that Einat would be one of the first people I'd have on as a guest. Einat Wolf is so dedicated to the Jewish community that she consistently commits herself to giving back to it in every way imaginable. I want to ask her, why? Why has she dedicated so much of herself to helping so many of us? It's really just incredible. Einat Wolf is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. Not only is she a Jewish leader herself, but she's building a new generation of Jewish leaders alongside her. I am so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Dr. Einat Wolf is a leading thinker on matters of foreign policy, economics, education, Israel, and Zionism. She was a member of the Israeli parliament from 2010 to 2013, where she served as chair of the education committee and member of the influential foreign affairs and defense committee. Born and raised in Israel, Dr. Wolf served as an intelligence officer in the Israel Defense Forces, foreign policy advisor to Vice Prime Minister Shimon Perez, and a strategic consultant with McKinsey & Company. She has also authored six books about key issues in Israeli society. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. Very much so. So we're going to start right off in the beginning. Um, I want to hear a bit about your experience growing up as a Jewish woman. What role did Judaism play in your life growing up in Israel? Um, where did you see yourself as a child? So first I have to say that uh, as an Israeli, this question in itself feels odd. Because in Israel, you don't think of yourself as, I certainly did not think of myself as a Jewish woman. I thought, I mean... Took me a few years to become a woman, but in terms of uh, being Jewish, you think of yourself as Israeli. And uh, certainly for people with my background who are very secular Jews, who come from the traditional uh, Israeli uh, socialist, secular, Zionist background, uh, Judaism was generally associated with kind of religious identity, and we were clearly not religious. So I think uh, it took quite a while to even think of myself as a Jewish person, woman or not. Uh, and uh, so that's one thing. I will say that from a fairly young age as a teenager, 
I was interested in the relationship between Israel and the Jewish people, uh, which was, again, given my background, odd. Uh, most Israelis, um, if they did not make Aliyah, if they were born in Israel, they're not likely to have a particular interest in Jews living outside of Israel. Uh, the Zionist kind of education and teaching very much focuses on the fact that we're here. And in many ways, the view is that Jewish life outside of Israel is uh, less so or ultimately destined to culminate with a better Jewish life in Israel. Uh, so I will say that I've always been fascinated by Jewish life outside of Israel. I've always been interested uh, in the relationship between Israel and the Jewish people. And in that sense, Jewish identity began to be uh, fairly prominent in my thinking. Where do you think that interest comes from? Because you you explain it as something that is particular to you and probably not as particular to Israeli society. Where do you think that interest in the diaspora, interest in Zionist education, and interest in Zionism as a piece of Jewish identity comes from? So I separate between uh, general interest in Zionism, which I think, again, I had from a fairly early age. I was interested in the history of Israel, in Zionist history, in the place of Israel among the nations. Uh, so that was fascinating for me uh, at a fairly early age. I guess that from that, perhaps, I had the interest in the relationship between Israel and the Jewish people. But there is nothing in my background that would indicate that um, my family is very Israeli. Uh, my father was born in Haifa, was very Zionist, very Israeli. My mother came to Israel at a very young age, grew up very Israeli. Um, so sometimes interest in the diaspora and relations between Israel and the Jewish people is more typical of uh, homes of Jews who came to Israel, typically from the West. Uh, so at one point I decided that I'm no longer going to seek an explanation for that and I'm just going to do it. So it's interesting. I'm interested in that. I'm doing it. And at one point I figured, I don't know why, but that it, it is what it is. I think that makes a lot of sense. Even though your entity is very particular, you grew up in Israel, your parents either moved to Israel or grew up in Israel. You're a part of this larger conversation of, you know, you're a woman in Israeli politics and Israeli politics has a particular focus on world Jewry as well, which it seems like you've been pretty involved with in the recent years. But you started off um, in Israeli politics in the Knesset. What brought you to that field? What brought you to, to be interested in politics in Israel? Because it feels like that's a very tense space to be a part of. It definitely is. And I think like uh, many women, I mean, we're finally doing better in terms of having more women in more prominent roles in Israeli politics. But I'm sure pretty much every woman in Israeli politics and maybe even some men heard that uh, politics is just not a place for nice girls or nice boys for that matter, that it's just not a place where you're a good person and, um, you know, you want to lead a good life, you don't go into politics. Politics is just a terrible place. And certainly uh, nice girls don't go into politics. So I think I grew up with that uh, kind of idea. Um, and as a result, even though I was always interested and fascinated by uh, certain politicians. One of my favorite growing up was Abba Ibn, who was Israel's uh, foreign minister and well-known uh, ambassador to the UN and to the US. Um, 
So I was interested by polit in political figures. I was interested in politics, but I always had this view that I'm not going to get into politics. Uh, and I think at one point uh, when I hit 30, I always joke that there's this, uh, you know, every age has its form of crisis. So the crisis that's typical of being 30 is that you can no longer be considered a promising young adult. Um, so you're, you're already like, there's the pressure to begin to deliver on the promise. Uh, so mm -hmm. the future begins to be present. So I think I felt that, uh, I don't want to wait around anymore. And if I want to do things that are interesting to me, then I just have to go into it, uh, just jump in and get into politics. And I did that by uh, volunteering with Israeli politicians, initially Yossi Balin and then Shimon Peres. And from there, I started to make my way into Israeli politics. Something that you mentioned earlier on in the interview was that your family had a particular identity that was rooted in Zionism and socialist Zionism and different, I think, more secular identities in Israeli society. Did that have any influence on your initial interest in politics or did it really come from your own experiences? So I think my interest in politics did come from the fact that because there was this interest in Israel and the leadership of Israel and the history of Israel and an understanding that Zionism is truly a remarkable historical movement and that in many ways we're lucky uh, to be living at a time when Zionism uh, is present. In many ways, I can tell you that growing up, I was almost miserable that I kind of missed the great moments of Zionism, that, you know, I didn't get to dry the swamps or build the stage or, uh, you know, that I was born too late. I was like a teenager in the 80s. How boring is that compared to <laughs> kind of the grand uh, earlier generations? Uh, but still, I had a sense that uh, this is a great story. This is a great uh, historical undertaking and that I do have an interest in being part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this really palpable sense of passion and almost romantic energy to Zionism. It's something that I think you see a bit growing up in the U.S., but you don't really get the same sense of unless you grew up in Israel and are a part of that. Um, and one thing I want to talk about for a second is kind of the way that you have become a champion for embracing that identity as, especially at a time where in the U.S. it's very often misunderstood, you embrace that as something that you're not afraid to talk about very vocally. Um, and I actually want to talk about your Twitter bio for a second, because I actually, um, at one point, my Twitter bio was inspired by your Twitter bio. I love your Twitter bio. Um, it's feminist, Zionist, atheist, yes. And these are some identities that I think are oftentimes put in clash with each other, especially today, where Zionism often excludes you from progressive spaces where you want to be a feminist. Or um, if you identify as a Zionist, there's a religious component to it where it's hard to talk about being secular and being a Zionist. How do you see these, these entities in conversation? How do you see them in tension? What's your experience, especially in a society and a government which does have a religious backdrop as, as being the culmination of these different pieces? So uh, two qualities I never lacked for in my life are confidence and courage. Uh, so I think whenever I feel that people are somehow afraid to use certain identities, uh, something in me does bring out that element of kind of being confident about your identity and refusing to budge. 
Uh, and for each of them, it was in different periods. The reason that I've placed both feminists and Zionists and atheists and all of these identities and then saying yes, in terms of like, yes, what you've read right now, I'm standing behind that, is that in different moments, in different circles, each of these identities uh, is considered uh, perhaps a bit too much in your face, if not to some people even offensive. And uh, I'll start with something about atheism because I heard once a great joke when this comedian said, she said, when I told my parents that I don't believe in God anymore, uh, they were mildly disappointed. But why an atheist? So I thought this was great because it showed the disconnect, which you also have in feminism and in Zionism, between the description of what it means. Zionism is the political movement for liberation and self-determination of the Jewish people and their ancient homeland. Simple. Uh, feminism is the political movement to secure the equal rights and opportunities of women. Simple. But somehow when you use the label, it grates on people. And I think confidence is at the uh, source of it because when you use those labels, you project confidence in the ideology. And that's almost dangerous because all of these ideologies are truly revolutionary, whether feminism or Zionism or atheism, they upend some of the most powerful institutions of humanity uh, for millennia. Uh, feminism upends uh, power structures that have existed since the agricultural era. So we're talking 10,000 years at least. Uh, Zionism upends uh, power structures that were based on a certain image of a powerless Jew. That's at least 2,000 years. Uh, atheism, of course, appends uh, religious institutions that have also been around for millennia, uh, the idea of God. So these revolutions are so powerful and they haven't ended. They're still working themselves uh, through uh, human society that when you stand behind them, when you project confidence and when you use labels, it means you project confidence, you don't budge. I think this is something that people almost view as dangerous. And this is precisely the reason that I insist on it. And I try to hopefully inspire people to insist on it as well. Yeah, and that really is something that I have seen a lot in your work. The term Zionism has become widely misunderstood and widely demonized, especially coming from the recent clash between Israel and Gaza. Um, and there was a point that you had made a while back, um, I believe it was on Twitter, actually, where you said, you know, a couple of decades ago, the term feminist was not an identity people wanted to, to wear because it came with a lot of baggage that people would often make preconceived notions based off misunderstandings about what it means to be a feminist. And the same thing is true of Zionism today, where you don't want to identify as a Zionist, even if you have those beliefs because of what that term has been perverted to mean. Um, and I think that's a really powerful point that you can have a belief and be afraid to use that label. And I think especially as women, we have this constant critical eye that demonizes us when we, when we choose to wear these labels. But you do that with so much confidence, which is really admirable. Thank you. Because, I mean, I think this is really the core of it. Uh, these terms are not demonized uh, out of thin, thin air. It's not a coincidence. Uh, a lot of people want you to believe that it's a coincidence, that feminism has been demonized because 
feminist women are really terrible. Uh, or that Zionism has been demonized because really Zionism is evil. Or that atheism means, you know, that no one believes in anything. Um, and by the way, I have to tell you, I often speak in uh, synagogues. And I speak about my atheism in the synagogue. And people, often, you know, they come up to me later. And I, I sometimes feel like uh, I'm coming out of the closet for them. Because they will come later and they will say, you know, I am too. And what does it mean? Um, so I do feel just like we have a pride parade and we understand politically why pride matters. Why being present in the public sc uh, space and being confident about uh, your identity. We understand the political power of that. Um, and it's precisely because the identities have been demonized in different contexts and different eras uh, for a purpose. Because these revolutions upend power structures that have existed for millennia, one of the things that is almost instinctive for the power structures is to try to push back against those revolutions. How do you push back against those revolutions? You push back by trying to make people fear to identify with them. And one of the fastest way to doing so is to demonize the very label. Because if women begin to fear uh, to identify themselves as feminists or Jews as Zionists or people who are atheists to confidently identify as that, you limit their spaces. You literally ghettoize them, you can control them, and then they're not that much of a threat. And this is precisely what I'm pushing against. I'm saying, understand what they're trying to do to you. It's not coincidental. It's not by mistake. It is a purposeful effort to make you feel afraid to be part of this revolution so that this revolution will not continue forward. And this is why it's so important for me to insist on that. That's the space where I first was introduced to your work, um, not not even as as a Knesset member, but in the diaspora, the work that you've been doing to get super involved in this fight against anti-Semitism and demonization of Israel, which I'm sure is a very different experience for you because in, in Israel, you're able to be you know, a progressive and also a Zionist and talk about believing Israel should exist. And that's probably not outside of the realm of, of normal and expected. But right now in the diaspora, these two identities are oftentimes painted as at odds with one another. And you have really done a lot of work, not only in Israel, but in the diaspora, now getting involved with so many different Jewish organizations um, to push back against that. What motivates you to get involved kind of outside of, outside of the Israeli scheme? First of all, again, from a young age, I have a very strong sense of uh, Jewish solidarity, of being a member of the Jewish people. Uh, when I spent some years in the U.S., uh, on, again, in a way that's not typical of Israelis, I was very interested in Jewish life on campus. I went to Hillel. Uh, I was interested in the organizations. So this is something that I've always had. And when I identify this phenomena where Zionism was being uh, presented as an evil idea, uh, that you cannot be both progressive and a Zionist. I encountered that almost 15 years ago. I was invited to speak. I was already involved in politics, not yet a member of Knesset, but I was invited to speak to the socialist members of the European Union. 
whom I assumed were my colleagues. I was a member of the Labour Party, Israel's Socialist Party. They were socialist members of the European Union. We're colleagues. And I remember sitting there and beginning to speak of myself just very obviously. I'm from Israel. I spoke about being from Labour Zionism, and I'm a Labour Zionist. And I began to realize that every time I said Zionism, the audience would cringe. And by the end of the talk, I realized that as far as these socialist left-wing members of the European Parliament were concerned, by saying that I was a labor Zionist, I was some right-wing nut and definitely not their colleague. And that's the first time I really got this sense of, uh, okay, by identifying yourself very simply, very instinctively, at the time it wasn't a big issue for me as a Zionist, they... Uh, thought of you as no longer relevant to their socialism. Uh, and that's when I began to see that phenomena, and later it moved from Europe, as many other phenomena did, from the European left to the American left to American campuses. And and I was it was very clear to me that we have, first of all, we have to push back against it because it's just not true. It's not true on so many levels. In fact, you can be a Zionist and a progressive person, And even beyond it, Zionism is a progressive uh, cause. And as one of my pinned tweets said, uh, it's a progressive cause that had the misfortune of success. Uh, So it's kind of a problem (laughs) because it actually succeeded in liberating Jews and helping Jews finally uh, govern themselves, have their own state. So that's a problem. We, we kind of want progressive causes uh, and we love victims, but if the victims are no longer victims, it's somehow a problem. Uh, so I pushed back against that just for the obvious reason that you can be both progressive and a Zionist. And at a deeper level, Zionism is a progressive cause. I think there's almost something sinister in the idea of trying to push Zionists out of progressive spaces uh, yes. Because I think, first of all, it deprives progressive causes of the energy and inspiration of Zionism, which I think is an inspiration to many progressive causes. Uh, but I think that's where it gets sinister that a lot of progressive politics today needs to create political alliances that are not very obvious and anti Jewish sentiment is historically a very powerful political glue for those who otherwise would never be glued together. Absolutely. And I think that is a really interesting point. There were recently comments made by multiple politicians. I mean, in the United States, even, for example, you hear Major Taylor Greene kind of um, making wildly anti-Semitic comments about comparing herself not getting a vaccine to a victim of the Holocaust. And then you'll see recently um, Ilan Omar saying that her Jewish colleagues aren't partners in justice. Um, And these are people who are fundamentally different ideologically, but where they can kind of see eye to eyes on their view of of exploiting Jewish trauma where it's needed, but ignoring Jewish suffering when when it's not convenient for their political perspective. And it's very interesting that you mentioned this experience you had in the UK 15 years ago, because I think a lot of what we're seeing now is Jews from the UK saying to Jews in the United States that 
they had been kind of sounding the alarm on this increase of anti-Jewish sentiment, increase in anti-Semitism for about a decade now. Um, and we did not heed their warnings. And now in the United States, we're seeing this massive uptick in anti-Semitism, particularly focused around college campuses, which is, I know, an area where we both do a lot of work. I think that what you're saying is is kind of damning and kind of haunting because just like lots of people have been saying, this is not a new thing. It's been happening for a while now and we we are kind of late to the game in trying to combat it. Well, I would say, I mean, you're not late to the game in the sense that it could definitely be pushed back against. And, and I think uh, you are doing very important work on pushing back. We talked about uh, kind of reclaiming the Zionist uh, label as a way of uh, pushing back. One of the things that I was very uh, impressed and uh, really made me optimistic is the way the Jews in the UK pushed back, because it was not at all obvious that it was going to happen. Jews in America have a history of politically organizing and being openly uh, organizing. Jews in the UK don't. Historically, Jews in the UK uh, adopted a more British attitude of staying kind of quiet about their identity uh, and not kind of openly organizing politically. But uh, with Corbyn, uh, I think Jews realized that there is a far greater danger here. And the danger was manifested, I think, in the notion of homelessness, uh, which is what you're seeing now in America. You're by telling Jews you cannot be in this space or in this space or you're not partners in justice or whatever, you're beginning to push Jews out and then you're telling them you have no space because on the right you have people who are uh, using kind of Jewish uh, identity against Jews and then you have on the left people telling Jews that you cannot be partners unless you renounce essentially any anything and everything that's Jewish about you. And I think the strongest feeling that Jews begin to have, and you saw it in the UK, is the sense of homelessness. Where do we belong? Where is our political home? Uh, I met so many young Jews who say, we want to support Ilhan Omar, or we want to support the squad, and we love their progressive politics, but to do so means to basically we have to renounce everything else about who we are as Jews and what we believe about Jewish identity and Zionism. And they are forced into that choice that other groups are not. And this feeling of homelessness is the most dangerous thing for Jews. Because if you look at the history of all kind of the rise of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish hatred, it works through this process of making Jews homeless initially by, you know, they can't be in certain places, in certain jobs, in certain cities. It's always this notion that you push them out until there's nowhere for them to be. So the sooner you push back against this homelessness, uh, the better, the more you're going to be able to protect your ability to actually have a home. And that's what Jews in the UK did. They pushed rather than saying, OK, we're going to leave the Labour Party. It's no longer our home and not necessarily wanting to go to the conservatives. Uh, they said, no, we want the Labour Party to be our home uh, and we're going to push back against making this the Labour Party inhospitable to Jews. Now, the fight is still going on. It's not over. But 
Jews in the UK did prove that you can organize and be vocal and push back on this effort to make Jews homeless. That's a really important point. And I think that a lot of Jewish activists in the UK and the US throughout the world today are really inspired by your work, have used your books as, you know, incredible tools of of knowledge. I know for me, The War of Return, your most recent book, was one of the most influential books that I'd read in starting to get involved with Jewish activism. It was one of the books that I read when I was first entering this space that really helped me to look at the conflict outside of just an American perspective, um, from the perspective of an Israeli who understood far more than I kind of grew up knowing. Um, And that really brings me to my next question. What do you think most people who aren't Israeli get wrong about the conflict? Why do you think it's so easily able to be demonized? What do we in the diaspora and non-Jews outside of Israel not see that you understand as an Israeli person? So, so many things are so obvious about the conflict, but they get contorted into really bizarre shapes. Uh, I have to tell you, I used to, I've been giving talks about the history and the conflict for many years. In the past, when I was asked, okay, what do you want your audiences to leave with? I would say, you know, if they appreciate that it's complicated, I would consider it good enough. This way they might suspend judgment uh, in the future when they hear things. But the more that I worked on the war of return, the more I realized that the conflict is actually incredibly simple. And it's really simple to explain. There's one side the Jews, who have a very clear goal. The Jews want a sovereign state in their ancestral homeland. It doesn't have to be in every square inch where there was a biblical event, but in the general vicinity of where they were formed as a people, they want to be sovereign. They want to finally, like all people, be masters of their faith. Very simple. Then you have the other side, The Arab world, the Arabs more broadly, generally backed um, most of the time by the Islamic world, who want the Jews not to have their state. It's really simple. It's not a conflict between two groups who want competing things and two groups who, let's say, want a state and therefore they have a border dispute. If that were the conflict, it would have been solved a long time ago. It's a really simple conflict. The Jews want a state. The Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. It's amazingly simple. If you understand that, uh, then you understand the behavior of the sides from sense. Now, what I'm saying, by the way, is also accepted by anti-Zionists or people who hate Israel. They will just justify it. They will say, of course, the Jews should not have a state because A, B, C, it's apartheid, it's settler colonial, uh, you are not even a people, you don't belong here. There's a whole litany of uh, reasons, but fundamentally, they agree on the characterization that it's a conflict between a group who wants a state and a group who thinks that the other group should not have a state. By definition, this is an irreconcilable conflict. One side will have to give up their fundamental ideology. Either the Jews forgo Zionism. And when you're looking at anti-Zionist Jews, basically that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know what? Uh, For the conflict to end, the Jews have to be homeless again, or, you know, 
have to go back to being a minority among others. And by the way, this time it's going to be fine. We know it hasn't been uh, worked too well in the past, but trust us, it's going to be fine this time. And then my worldview, and that's also the worldview in the War of Return, is that the Arab world will one day have to accept the legitimacy of the Jewish claim to self-determination in the land. It's not an exclusive claim, but it has to be recognized as a legitimate claim. Uh, I draw optimism from developments that are taking place in the Arab world, uh, where you are seeing certainly in some Gulf states, but also there are more and more voices who are basically saying enough, enough with the blanket Arab rejection of the Jewish right to self-determination in the land. If anything, Arab history and Islamic uh, texts should actually lead us to recognize that the Jews have a legitimate claim, and it's time that we not only make peace with Israel, we fully normalize uh, relations with our Jewish brethren. So I think we're in the midst of a very interesting ongoing battle between those who want to solve the conflict by getting Jews to give up on Zionism and those who want to resolve the conflict, such as myself, by getting Arabs to give up on anti-Zionism. That's a really interesting way to frame it, which I think requires a lot of understanding of the history of the Middle East that's often not emphasized in the conflict. I think a lot of the time it's painted in a very Western way of thinking as, you know, Jews as not having a tie to the Middle East, not being minorities that have existed throughout the entire world, all over the world for millennia. And I think it's really important to to understand more broadly the contextualization behind the history of it. And I recommend everyone to read Anat's work if you haven't yet, because it is very powerful and very important read. Um, and the final question, you know, for for every guest that I like to end the podcast with, I really want this podcast to be an opportunity for young people, all young people, but especially young girls, um, to have access to mentors that they wouldn't have otherwise had if they didn't have this podcast, to, you know, be able to sit down and, and hear from women who they might never get a chance to speak to in fields that they might want to be a part of. Um, and I like the takeaway from this to be, you know, what advice would you want to give to a young girl listening to this about navigating the world as a Jewish woman, how you see yourself as a Jewish woman? So obviously, given everything we spoke about, my recommendation would be to be fully all of that, fully Jewish, however you see it, fully being a woman, however you see it. Don't tell anyone that you have to choose between the, those identities. Don't let anyone make you feel that somehow you need to make any of those identities smaller. Uh, don't let anyone tell you that you need to, what it means to be the good kind of Jew or the good kind of women. Uh, be exactly how you feel those identities should be. Uh, be all of them fully and together. Uh, I will say that I know it's sometimes exhausting. Uh, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> often, <laughs> I often meet uh, women and the one thing you really hear from them is exhaustion. Women who are working to improve the lives of girls and young women around the world. Every time they make some breakthrough, some progress, they realize how much more remains to be done. 
So I yeah. think uh, the same with Jews. We, we've made amazing progress. Uh, Zionism is truly a remarkable achievement, but we still have to fight for it. Uh, we still have to fight for the legitimacy. It is exhausting, but at least in my experience, it's also been tremendously rewarding. So my recommendation would be go for it fully. Thank you. Anat, you are an unbelievably inspiring woman. Um, and if anyone's listening to this who isn't familiar with her work, she has incredible speeches. She has incredible books, a great social media platform that always leaves me feeling super empowered in my identity. I cannot recommend it enough. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. It's been such an honor to speak with you. Thank you. And right back at you for all you do. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to talk with Anat Wilf today. On a bit of a personal note, it's just really incredible to sit down with a mentor who you admire so much and get the chance to learn about them in an authentic way. I've known Anat for almost a year now, but I feel like I learned more in this one conversation than I ever knew before. I'm honored that she opened up to us all to so many of her experiences. I'm really struck by her story about speaking at a conference for socialist politicians in Europe many years ago. Here is a Jewish woman whose family had been involved in the socialist movement for generations. The Jewish socialist movements being this huge part of Israeli history. Only a few decades after Jews were discriminated against in socialist spaces in places in the USSR, a not was being excluded from socialist spaces in contemporary Europe. This was before anti-Semitism had as much of the hold it does today, before it was expected for Jews, especially Zionist Jews, to experience this sort of discrimination. Here stood this woman, this feminist, this Jew, this survivor, and she was being excluded from spaces in Europe, a place which had expelled Jews barely a lifetime ago. Her story hurts in a way that feels really real. Ainat's story resonates with me so much because even though we grew up half a world away from one another in totally different generations, we have the same experience. We've both been excluded because, well, because we're Jewish. That experience has brought us together, coming from two different worlds, working on the same mission, to protect the Jewish community. In a sense, that is the state of Jewish history, a people spread around the world, bound together by mutual experience people who have survived together because we've struggled together. It's painful, but it's also really beautiful. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls. Hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other nice Jewish girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcast at jewishunpacked.com and join us next week when we'll be speaking with Sophie Frieden, activist, TikToker, entrepreneur, and one of my best friends in the entire world. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rivki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Dassey. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. I want to specifically recommend Unpacking Israeli History, where every episode my colleague Noam does a deep dive into different events in Israeli history. I love it because it's this nuanced, honest portrait of stories about a messy and amazing place. Check it out and let me know what you think. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies. <laughs>